Hello and welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I am Russ. And I am Gordon. So Gordon, you've been pondering again, uh, which makes for beneficial episodes for our listeners. So what have you been working on lately? Well, it seems to me that most of these podcasts come about by me thinking of things that I don't know. That's a good thing. So I came to the realization that I understand very little uh, of the concept of resizing images. I knew the process, I thought. You grab a crop tool, you drag it around until things look kind of pretty, and then you click OK. Well, that is in fact one of the primary objectives of compositional control. You know, we've often said that most any image created will benefit from some level of cropping. But I got a sense, because I know you well, and uh, I can hear the gears turning. <laughs> so you've got some more stuff winding around in your ever-facile brain. Do you like that word? Facile. Yeah, facile, yes. That, that's a good one. Yeah, I, I worked on that. <laughs> well, yes, there there is stuff that's going on in And it came from a couple of sources. The first was a request from my wife for me to make a print from a 35 millimeter negative. And the other was an influx of, your word, MIC marketing from reputable software companies proclaiming their software ability to increase the size sharpen an image, and produce wonderful results. <clears throat> My foray into the first point was a dismal failure, and my exploration of what I consider to be poorly written websites uh, basically have left me floundering. Okay, well, I, I can understand that. I do have to give proper credit, however. I did not create the term Mick Marketing. That was created by a senior marketing executive, actually, a guy I worked with by the name of Jeff Hayward. Um, but as you can imagine, it was not meant in a positive sense. No. So what's your approach to trying to deal with these challenges around, or not so much challenges, but questions around the practice of resizing? My long-deceased uh, chief, who drilled into me, uh, that if you understand the principles behind something, you can work out the details from there. So, let's start there. Okay, that's fair enough. Where do you think is an appropriate place to start? Well, the digital age has provided us with sensors of different sizes. These provide images of different sizes, obviously, and... I may be wrong, but I don't think the average user, and that includes me, pays very much attention to the size of the image being generated or the information that is being presented. For instance, where is the data of the image presented in our image management software? I found it now. There's some places in in Lightroom and different places in Photoshop, but it is there. And what is the format for this? Is it presented in 
pixels or bytes or kilobytes and some as in megabytes. So given all this variation, is there a way or a necessity of translating this to inches or centimeters for our average everyday thinking process? That's a very good place to start. So let's break it out and separate the actual image itself from the file that holds the image. So when we see metrics or measurements that refer to bytes, kilobytes, or megabytes, we're not referring to the image itself. We're referring to the file size. Okay. But typically, as you've correctly alluded, we will see, by default, image measurements in pixels. Yep. However, what that means is not always clear because most every sensor renders its pixels or builds its pixels in a different fashion. Hence, they have a different surface area, different spacing, different number of pixels. And at some point, if you're going to make a print, the printer doesn't care about pixels. It cares, as you suggest, about inches or centimeters. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we do need a way to start thinking about things in that manner. Unfortunately, I fear that most users of cameras, purchasers of cameras, think solely in terms of megapixels. And to my mind and the mind of others, megapixel is a particularly odious and useless concept in general. Many folks are consumed by the number of megapixels recorded and not in how they'll be used. And that's the only relevant question. Sensors only provide images in certain sizes that are usable when each pixel contributes its own information directly rather than substituted through compression or blanks filled in through interpolation using some upsizing techniques. Attempting to align a captured image to a physical size measurement requires some assumptions of constant values, such as the number of pixels represented per inch on a display or in dots per inch on a print. And even those assumptive numbers can tend to be modified during delivery. So for the sake of simplicity and perhaps confusion, let's think about a generic true 4K display that we might buy at the computer shop. Most of these displays are what we call a UHD 4K display, meaning that they are 3,840 pixels wide by 2,160 pixels tall. What's missing here is what the pixel spacing is because that's a hard number to pace based on the physical size in inches or centimeters of the display. Now, let's use an example that my 4K display, which I measured for this, is 23 and a half inches wide. I'm not looking at the diagonal measurement which without an aspect ratio is mostly useless. And in this scenario, that context of 23.5 inches wide, being occupied by 3,840 pixels, I'm getting about 163.4 pixels per inch. Mm -hmm. okay. That's, I think, simple math. Now, let's take a sample sensor, and I chose the Nikon Z... Z, Z ZZ-7-2, try to be international in flavor, 
which is rated at 45.7 megapixels. Okay, what does that mean? Well, means again, can't afford it. <laughs> it means that nothing until we start to determine the aspect ratio. Now, we happen to know that the aspect ratio on this particular sensor is what we would call 3 to 2, mm -hmm. which is fine. But not all sensors are 3 to 2. Nope. For example, you shoot a micro four-thirds, which is 4 to 3. Right. And then we have things like the standard 8x10 or 10x8 print, which doesn't match anything <laughs> because it's 5 to 4. So let's go back to our example Nikon sensor. In this case, there are 8,256 usable pixels across the usable sensor space of 35.9 millimeters. So that's about 230 pixels per millimeter. Now we do the math conversion, 25.4 millimeters per inch, and we find that there are roughly 5,842 pixels per inch. That's a whole lot of pixels. That's a lot of pixels. Do you see the problem, though? Even if I now think about a, pix a print that is 300 pixels per inch, that sensor is gathering far more information than will ever be used in a 300 pixel per inch print. Mm -hmm. Now, also think about that in the context of that display. The display is only... 163.4 pixels per inch. What's happening to all those other pixels that we're gathering? Hmm. I don't know. That, that's a that, good question. That's one of the things that led me to this question in the first place. And that's why your question is so relevant. And which leads us to one of the things that we've read in various productivity guides and such. Let's start with the end in mind. Let's start with what our use case is for the final image. So let's say for the purposes of our example, we want to know the native print size for an image captured by that specific sensor. Now, I do understand that some people will say, hey, wait, I'll do the math that you're gonna give me and that's not 45.7 megapixels. That is in fact true because the entire sensor is not used megapixel count, and then there are usable pixels, and the two are not the same. Okay. Reference that MIC marketing Again. that you yeah. talked about mm -hmm. earlier. But it's not a big, big difference, so we shouldn't get our shorts in a knot about it. So for the purposes of our illustration, we want to know the native print size. That is, what's the biggest print that we can make from that sensor image without downsizing or upsizing it? And we agree, for the purposes of our example, that we're going to use a print resolution of 300 pixels per inch. So, in the example sensor, we have a usable pixel resolution of 5,842 pixels by 5,504 pixels. Therefore, simply dividing the number of pixels by 300 tells us that our default print size from that sensor, with no adjustments made at all, would result in a print that would be 27.5 by 18.3 inches, 
no sizing adjustment at all. Now, you could certainly reduce that native print size to fit a smaller page, or you could increase it by mathematical means to fit on a larger page size. We know this works because we've seen 24 by 36 prints or 36 by 24 prints made with six megapixel cameras that look fabulous mm -hmm. when we take into account proper viewing distance. Now, if our use case is not for print, it's just for electronic display, perhaps on a electronic sign or something like that, the criteria for native size is based on the resolution of the device itself. In our same example on a display that is 72 inches in diameter, so six feet in diameter, that delivers true 4K resolution or UHD 4K resolution because there is another one, we'll do the math to discover that the pixel distribution in this case is 61.22 pixels per inch. Now, that's a lot smaller than the print, right? Mm -hmm. That's not because the screen is bad. It's simply that that's what the screen can deliver, assuming it is a 4A display. And I did the math to make sure this works. At first, folks will hear this and say, well, that makes no sense because it's bigger. But it makes perfect sense when we take standard viewing distance into account. At 72 inches diagonally, multiplied by 2, we get a standard viewing distance of 144 inches or 12 feet. At a distance of 12 feet away or more, the display looked great to us. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it always works. A giant painting should be viewed from further back. Further back. Right. Consider the coronation of Napoleon as an example. It's a huge wall-sized painting. Right. You're not going to examine it from six inches away. <laughs> so, <laughs> although we've both seen people do that with photographs because they're crazy. So therefore, presuming that the display resolution actually goes up as size increases, which isn't true, our sensor above could at 61.22 pixels per inch drive a display that is natively 95 and a half inches wide and then if we did the pixel math on that, that would actually be a 6K display. Now, can we buy 6K displays? Yes, we can. Get your Amex card out because you're going to need something <laughs> with no spending limit. What we take from this is that the megapixel count is irrelevant completely for a display and only comes into effect when we're printing to the native print size without any computational math. Now, that's not to say that extra megapixels are not beneficial if you're doing very aggressive cropping in. But even then, I'm going to submit that it probably doesn't matter. Because as we said earlier, we've seen superb looking 36 by 24 prints rendered solely from image data collected on an old 6 megapixel sensor. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's probably the most comprehensive breakdown of dots, inches, and viewing distance that I have ever heard. And it took a lot of cerebral synapses to make the work to follow it. But it is bang on accurate. The take-home that I get from this is that our current cameras will generate way more pixels than we can use 
and the number is meaningless unless we take into the context of how those pixels are going to be uh, used or the end result that we are looking for. Is it going to be a print? Is it going to be a display on a small mobile device? Uh, without taking those factors into consideration, it's probably meaningless. Which then begs the question, is any of this impacted by whether the image was shot in RAW or in JPEG? Well, this is a fun button. <laughs> I, I like to start a conversation between RAW and JPEG and then stand back and watch the, <laughs> watch the fun. Uh, last man standing. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> The loudest usually wins. Uh, so let's talk about that. Raw, a raw file is actual data. JPEG fine, what we encounter most of the time, is a conversion of the raw file that retains only about 27% of that converted raw's actual data. Everything else that goes into a JPEG file are mathematical substitutions. So let's do some more math. Let's use our sample sensor, the one we used earlier at 58, 42 pixels per inch, and take 27% of it. This is a presuming that we get a very, very excellent JPEG conversion. And guess what? They're not all the same. We're going to get, in that case, about 1,577 pixels per inch. This is a massive data loss. However, it's still five times more data than our 300 dots per inch print can handle and nearly 10 times more than our high-end 4K display can render. So that may beg the question, can I see the difference? Probably not. Probably not. My experience has been that, uh, again, we when we think about JPEG, we don't actually think about the amount of data that has been lost in the process of creating that. Most people don't. Because it's, and we don't it's, care. And, and, and they don't care because it's, a convert, it's already been converted from the raw. Remember, a raw file has no picture. Right. It's just bytes. Okay. So I think we've covered the issue of the basics of image generation. So let's move on to the actual issues of resizing. And some of the confusion that is generated, I think, are as follows. To display an image, uh, say, on our forum when we're submitting uh, stuff that we have done, we routinely decrease the pixel count to 1920 across the long axis. Uh, my understanding is that at this level, it makes the screen display acceptable or better than, but it is useless for somebody trying to download the image to use it for their own purposes. Publishing images on social media, example, Facebook, Instagram, etc., they all have their own requirements of sizing. So this is handled by the software most of the time. And Photoshop Express, 
which we have started using, or talked about anyway, uh, as a means of display, uh, automatically provides choices for display media. Uh, you can pick whether you want it on Instagram or whether you want a Facebook uh, presentation, and it will resize to suit. And Lightroom actually does not do any image resizing unless, A, you crop the image and uh, hope the best, or you export the image and you say what size you want it to be exported in, or you are actually doing a print where you have to define the size of the image that you're going to be printing. Photoshop, on the other hand, does have an image sizing menu selection where you can determine or define the size of the image that you want. Any thoughts on any of this? Sure. Let's try to take your questions in order before we, we, we again, try to simplify slash frustrate. When we talk about image width used on forums and, and websites and such, 1920 pixels is, as we now know, going to be more than sufficient regardless of the display size. Right. Remember our... 72-inch display. Our 72-inch display would only have 61 pixels per inch at 4K. If we give it 1920 pixels, we're giving it lots more data than it's ever going to be able to use. Sure. So the image is going to look great. But by downsizing to 1920 pixels, we've reduced the file size dramatically. Right. So that means upload and download speeds are going to be shorter. And it's also true that by reducing the overall final resolution, remember this is a final file. Right. If someone steals it, and they do, it's... Ability to be reused is going to be limited because it's been reduced in physical size. A conversion has happened and data has been thrown away. And the only way you get a smaller file? Get rid of the pixels. Get rid of pixels. I mean, it's basic math, right? This is exactly the same thing that happens on Facebook and Instagram and such because they want uploads to be smooth and easy. Mm-hmm. And they've also got predefined frames and data structures for how they display images. So they will provide, hey, for Facebook, this is the optimal resolution. And for Instagram, this is the optimal resolution. And no, they're never the same. That would be convenient. <laughs> but that's just the way it goes. And, and as you say, Adobe Express uh, provides choices for display media. I can export directly for Facebook. I've also seen other editors that have an export for Facebook option, sometimes in the right. form of a plugin. And it will automatically do a resize, or more correctly, scale down to fit the Facebook requirements or the Instagram requirements. If you happen to be doing video, which is not directly as part of our conversation, but it's very important if you're going to upload to Instagram or to YouTube, they have very specific pixel dimension requirements. If yours doesn't fit, she no go. She and no so that's why we have these presets available to help us. That's a good thing. And you're correct. The Lightroom offers two scaling options, one in the print module 
and one in the file export module. But fundamentally, resizing is really simple. You decide on the size of the final output, what we talked about earlier. Start with the end in mind. And you decide on the pixel per inch resolution of that final output. That will tell you what your minimum resolution at time of capture needs to be, or perhaps at time of final crop. I would submit that any modern camera will do a great job on any display and cover very well all of the most common print sizes if you start with an uncompressed file like a RAW or a TIFF. That doesn't mean that you can't start with a JPEG. You just go in knowing that there is some data that is actually not real. It's substituted. When I say substitution, it says in Pixel 423, use the data from Pixel 112 and use the data from Pixel 112 in these other hundred so-called pixels. That's how substitution works. Right. Use the same data in more than one place. And as we know, pop it up on a decent screen, on your handheld, on your tablet, or even print it, and it looks pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. Because with the tools available to us, we can do pretty well. Once you know that minimum resolution, this gives you the information you need to use in your resizing software. And when I talk about resizing software, I mean something that is dedicated to doing actual resizing, not scaling. Scaling is the process of throwing away pixels or filling in blank spots with averaged pixels called interpolation. You mentioned one example of this, that everybody who uses Photoshop gets as part of the package, the image resizing capability within Photoshop. Right. Which is, in the current release, very, very good. But it's a resize. And you'll see that when you choose to use it, that it offers you options in how it's going to do the resizing. Most Correct. common is something called bicubic. Mm -hmm. Or dimensional. Right. Therefore, once you've done your final crop, because cropping is destructive and it throws away pixels and you get your minimum resolution, you're in good, in good shape. Now I do want to drop in the comment that I've heard people say that cropping is not pixel destructive. That's absolutely untrue. In Photoshop, you have a methodology in cropping to say, don't throw away the pixels that are cropped. But those pixels don't exist when we create the export, either right. as an image or a print. They're gone. They're just retained in the original PSD file right. if you want to change the crop after the fact. Right. Hey, that's not a bad thing. Some people choose to throw them away because they're committed to the crop or for whatever reason, they're particularly concerned about file size. Right. Although storage is relatively inexpensive these days. That brings up a couple of points. Um, cropping is destructive. It you, is. You can, in some instances, go back and retrieve what you've done. Lightroom, Lightroom for instance, you can crop. Yes. But when you go back in, yes, the the... The dimensions are there, and you can undo what you've done. But that sort of raises a question, is if you're going to do this, 
or you're going to have multiple places where you're going to change the crop to suit the display, maybe you should be doing it in a duplicate of some form. This is a good use for Lightroom's virtual copy. I was thinking that virtual copy itself. Because remember, Lightroom doesn't actually change the file. It only creates a file on export. Right. So the virtual copy uses the original data. Right. And Lightroom's cropping is not actually cropping. It's an XML instruction. Whereas Photoshop's cropping is true pixel destructive cropping. Right. And that's why in Photoshop, when you export a file, you actually get to choose the dimensions of the exported file. Okay, yep. Right? Just like Mm -hmm. you do in, in, in Lightroom. Right. But it is... Done. Done for that exported file, right? So that works pretty well. All right. Uh, So there's been a fairly recent media blitz regarding the resizing software, um, artificial intelligence or otherwise. And we have talked about decreasing the size of the image. But in the media, it seems to suggest that there is software that will let you go the other way. In other words, you're starting with a relatively small-ish image or image file, and you can uh, make a significantly larger print from it, uh, which is what I thought I was doing with the print from a slide that my wife asked me for. And it was at that time that I became it became aware of uh, Adobe's uh, super resolution function, where I I thought at that time that if I made this scanned image from a thirty five millimeter slide, that if I was going to make a print out of it, I should use the super resolution to increase the number of pixels and thereby give myself a good working size for the print. I was absolutely flabbergasted when I found that the super resolution had taken an 18 megabyte image and converted to a 276 megabyte image. That absolutely blew my mind. So, any thoughts on that? And, oh, wait, just a minute. I mean on the megabyte size, not on the fragmentation of my brain. More than fair. (laughs) So, without getting into the workings of super resolution, that at this point I am not sufficiently cognizant to explain exactly what it's doing mathematically. Right. But just like you can't make something from nothing, you have to start somewhere in the process of increasing size. Now, why would you increase size in the first place? Well, the only reason you would increase size is to that you don't have enough data to fill the end-use case. Right. Meaning it's not a 72-inch diagonal screen. It's a 72-foot diagonal <laughs> screen. Okay. <laughs> Although you could probably actually get there because at that point you're probably positing about five pixels per inch because you're, well, we've already established that <laughs> yes. some dingbat's going to measure that. Look at that from six inches away and say, this is really lousy. But I think you understand 
but most often in terms of a print. I've got a low-res photo from my smartphone that I happen to love, and I want to make a wall poster from it. Well, maybe you'll need to do some resizing for right. that. There are multiple methodologies to do resizing. Bicubic, which we know, standard in Photoshop, is one methodology. But the methodologies used by some of these third-party products, whether they are AI or not, is mathematically different. Okay. Not necessarily better, although some would tell you that it is, I being one of those people. Because, and let's use an example, is the resize module in On One Photo Raw, which I know very well, is based on something called fractal mathematics. Now, if you've never studied fractals, it's absolutely fascinating. What it says is that anything you look at it, if you look at it at great levels of magnification, you find multiple iterations of what you're seeing inside the original image. Look at an image of a shoreline, dive down, and you'll find more iterations of the same shoreline pattern. Mm. Okay. There was an IBM so scientist. Layering, basically. It's, it's sort of. Not really layering, it's more molecular repetition. Oh, okay. It's, a, it's really fascinating. There was an IBM scientist named Benoit Mandelbrot who wrote a number of pieces on this, and you can find these in libraries and online. And the methodology that the original perfect resize from the company we now call On One used fractal math. Fractal math is complex, but it uses the principle of fractals, okay. which is not, that's not a discussion item whether the fractals exist or not. They're there. Whether you use them or not is a personal choice. It does an amazing job when you resize. I have a concrete example that I was asked by a fellow who took a photograph of his wife while on vacation uh, down south on an old iPhone, a four megapixel iPhone. And he wanted 24 by 36 print. Okay. Awesome. We know that the native resolution of that old iPhone image, right. which was never raw, Right. Which only came out of the company, uh, the, the camera back then as a JPEG, was probably not going to look beautiful at that resolution at 24 by 36 inches. However, using the fractal math within then called perfect resize, now called on one photo raw resize module. <laughs> okay. Different label. <laughs> Same recipe. It looked fantastic. And you could stand within proper viewing distance. Right. Like, we call that in layman's terms, mm -hmm. too Keep freaking it. close. <laughs> and it still looked PFC. great. <laughs> uh, and the client was really, really happy. Very happy with the results. And so these resizing tools can do an amazing job. Now, I still have a license for On One Photo Raw Resize because it works so well. And I've recently used Topaz's Gigapixel AI to do the same sort of thing. Whether there is actual AI involved, don't know. 
don't care. As long as not, there's no Terminator at the front door looking for Sarah Connor, <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> Nonetheless, the mathematics used in these tools is complex, and there's a cost to develop and support that, and that's why these tools have a charge to them. There are multiple different methodologies for resizing, but anything that we see in the marketplace today works pretty darn well. But that original has to have sufficient initial resolution to do the job because you cannot create something from nothing. Fractal math, for example, will try to fill in the, in the gaps using fractals. Bicubic expansion will try to use to fill in the gaps using a bicubic mathematical algorithm. They're creating something to fill space that did not exist originally based on a mathematical computation of the surrounding of what pixel. what should have been there, right. What would have been there had it been higher resolution. So the thing to think about, and this comes back to your initial project, if we're working with old transparencies or old negatives, you want to ensure that when you're scanning, you are scanning at a high enough resolution to suit what your final use case is going to be, but not so high as to make enormous files that are unwieldy. And also note, when you're scanning, the default scan file is always a JPEG. You don't mm, want, want that. that. You want an uncompressed file. And so in that case, if you're going to scan old NEGs, new NEGs, transparencies, or as I do with negatives from my 4x5, I always scan to an uncompressed format. Specifically, in my case, I use TIFF. Yes, the files are big. But I get enough resolution that I can make gigantic prints from them because printing is my use case. Right. Not displaying on the screen. And anything that I've scanned that's ready for print, remember, 300 pixels screen per inch is, is a lot it. more than this 4K display sitting in front of me. Right in terms of pixels per inch. So I'm going to be really happy with it on display or on print. Right. So scan to that compressed so format. So if I had a negative, then I would say, okay, I'm going to try and make a 8 by 10 print out of this or 8 by 11 and a half or whatever the, whatever paper, your size whatever the is. paper size is. And Multiply that by 300, that will give you the number of well, the resolution that the you resolution want to scan. The resolution that you want to have. Okay. So, for example, let's use 8 by 10 which we know doesn't fit anything. Right. But that tells us basically that we're going to need a working image after scan of 2400 right. by 3000 right. pixels. Right. And that produces a 5 to 4 or 4 to 5 resolution working file. Right. That we can now then resize, resize up, up without yeah. loss. Okay. Okay. And uh, talking about scanning, so just to clarify for everybody, you, when we scan, we in fact cannot scan a raw. Well, you can scan a raw file, but it won't come out as a raw. File. Or you. Well, there is no. There no is no raw file. So by the time file. we get to it. If you've got a negative uh, or a positive... We weren't work, working in raw those You're not days. working in raw. And that's why you want to avoid any further compression. Okay. That's the benefit of TIFF. Now, the other thing to look at is at time of scanning, 
most scanners will have the capability to do some level of exposure adjustment. Ah, yes. As well as corrections. Yep. Digital ice, a very common corrective tool, was created for people who weren't going to do editing after the fact. Right. It's pretty awesome. But if you're going to edit after the fact, maybe you want to turn that off. Right. Because it's going to do noise reduction and some smoothing and some sharpening and some artifact removal that could probably be better accomplished in a tool like Lightroom or Photoshop or whatever tool you happen to use if you edit. The other consideration is when you look at the scanned image, do so on a screen that is calibrated for color. Right. And that you know is set at a brightness level that will generate a proper print. You don't care about the screen brightness when it comes to an on-display image, but you care desperately about it so when you're editing for print, Mm -hmm. the print doesn't come out too light or too dark. Right. And so then look at the scan and make sure that it is of a proper exposure level. Right. Because remember, if it's underexposed at time of scan and you have to brighten it in post, we are adding noise. Right. Because we're not starting with a raw file, if it's overexposed and we try to bring it down, we crush the blacks. Okay. Because there is no dynamic range available to work with. Right. This is why we shoot in raw as opposed to JPEG. It's not that JPEG is bad. It's that raw gives us the full dynamic range to work with when we come to edit. Right. We've often said, if you're not going to edit, don't shoot in RAW. Oh, absolutely. Um, shoot in JPEG. It's going to look good. Sure. But you're going to give up a fair bit of stuff, right? Right. So get the exposure right in the scan. If you're looking for a decent scanner, there's a couple of ways to scan negatives and positives. You can build a rig. If you happen to be using one of the Nikon cameras, Nikon actually makes a slide and negative scanner that mounts to their camera that's not particularly expensive and does it one mm-hmm. at a time. You can also use a flatbed scanner that will come with negative or trans negative and transparency holders, something right. like an Epson 600. Mm-hmm. Or you can go higher up if you've got larger format negs, you know, 120 negs or 4x5 negatives. Right. I have a very old Epson 4900 and I keep it because it does four by five negatives right. and transparencies. It's got the holder for that. You also want to make sure that your scanner is capable of scanning negatives and transparencies because most scanners fire the light up. Right. You need the light coming from behind. Right. So that means there needs to be illumination in the lid as well as illumination in the base unit. Right in order to get a decent quality scan. Now, sadly, if you were a slide person, as a lot of serious photographers were, one of the finest slide scanners ever out, ever out there was the Nikon CoolScan 9000. Hasn't been built for years, isn't supported by most scanning software. Uh, but if you've got an old scanner, I would highly encourage you to try out ViewScan from Hamrick Software, H-A-M-R-I-C-K. You can buy the license, but you can also use it as a trial uh, without penalty 
for a period of time. And it is absolutely superb because it supports all these old scanners that modern scanning software doesn't understand. That's not to say the view scan isn't modern. In fact, they upgrade it regularly. It's that good. Also, if you're looking at scanning negatives, look to other pieces here on the photo video guide. If you search through the articles, you'll find an article on scanning negatives and slides that recommends and provides the download link for a free book. Right, and I have actually gone back and looked at that. And it, 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 it's kind of peculiar when you first start looking at it because it presents the ebook as a series of scanning lessons, but they're, they're chapters of a book, so... And it's pretty straightforward. It's straightforward. It tells you what to look for, what not to look for, what to do, what not to do, and get on with it. And I recommend that ebook very, very highly. It's mentioned again, as I say, in an article on the Photo Video Guy site. Just search scanning. Okay. Well, I think we've done whatever we can do to unconfuse or maybe confuse the issue. Any other thoughts you might have? I don't. I would encourage anyone who does have questions, they're probably going to be more specific at this point. So there's a question form on the site. You can fill it out, right. send it in, and we will we'll read them and we answer every question that comes in. You can also post a comment for this particular podcast episode. And we're happy to answer that too. Oh, and by the way, if you do find what we do useful and you happen to shop at B&H Photo, please do so through our link, which I forgot about and then got a nice surprise <laughs> at Christmas time. Oh, I made some money. <laughs> Not a lot of money, but it was very nice. Thank Cup you. of coffee. Uh, thank, thank you for that. And also we have the Buy Us a Coffee Link that allows you to support the podcast. I know that sounds like we're begging, but we don't have a Patreon page or anything like that. So if you find what we do useful, give consider giving us, us some support or don't. It's entirely up to you. For the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast, I'm Ross. I'm Gordon. We'll speak to you again very soon. <laughs>